Father God, we pray that you would enlighten our hearts and minds through this word, that we would not only desire to see and behold the glory that is your kingdom, indeed your very presence, but that having been invited to receive it, we would come, we would rejoice, and we would find hope here through the Christ child. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. The angels, they proclaim in verse 14, glory to God in the highest. It's a famous exclamation, and you may be wondering, well, what's so great about God's glory? Why, why should I, as a normal human being, care that God receives glory? Why is that important? And this kind of question can take a number of forms. Maybe you've wondered what heaven is going to be like, and uh, you've pictured heaven as kind of a lengthy, prolonged, eternal church service, and, and maybe you think, well, why do I want that? What is so great about that that I would want to be a part of this? Or maybe, it, uh, maybe you've you know, seen and heard the descriptions in the Bible of the greatness of the glory of God, His, His fearful majesty, and you wonder, well, what does that have to do with me? I, I, don't, I wasn't here. I wasn't with the shepherds. I didn't get to see what they saw. Of what value is God's glory to me in the day and day in, day out existence with which I am struggling? The angels are actually very clear that the glory of God is of great benefit, not only, for the entire, not only for these shepherds, but for the entire world. The glory of God is, it is joy to the world. And you can't separate the one from the other. To ascribe glory to God, for Jesus to ascribe and proclaim glory to God is the good of humanity. And at the same time, to have peace on earth, to, to receive the blessings that have been promised to the people of God, you need God to be glorified. Those two ideas, blessing for us and glory to God, are inextricably intertwined, and you see that in this passage. We're going to explore this this morning under two headings. First, we're going to look uh, about, uh, at the glory of God as an awful thing. And we'll define and describe that here in a moment. And then secondly, the glory of God as an accessible thing. So what is so great about the glory of God? First, that it is awful. And second, that it is accessible. So first then, the glory of God is awful. I know that that probably is currently rubbing you the wrong way. Why that word? I'm using awful in the archaic Way. In fact, if you go to a dictionary and you look up words in the dictionary, words, popular words, you'll often find at the very bottom of, the, of entries, you'll find something that says archaic, right? Meaning, probably don't use this in a public context. Archa the archaic definition of the word awful is to inspire with awe. It is to create a sense of fearful awe in the presence of something. It's not the way we normally use it. 
But the, really, the only alternative in our culture is the word awesome, which has its own pitfalls. You don't, you know, when you describe the glory of God as awesome, you don't really capture what's going on in this passage. Because remember, the shepherds shake and tremble and bow the knee when they are confronted with this glory. It's, it's more than just really great. Something else is happening here. We need to consider the awfulness, the, the, the way in which the glory of God inspires reverent awe and fear. How does it do that? What do we see in the glory of God that results in it being a, a terrifying and yet glorious fear? First, the glory of God is fearful in its might, and second, it is joyful in its goodness. So we need to look at these two aspects of the glory of God as it reveals itself as an as a awesome, as an awful thing. It is first, it is fearful in its might. That is to say that it is so powerful, so overwhelmingly other, that it creates fear in our hearts and in our minds. Notice, uh, when the angels come, the shepherds are immediately terrified. In fact, they were filled with great fear. They feared a fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, verse 10, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. <coughs> the angels assure the shepherds that there's nothing to be afraid of. What's going on in this passage? In our own culture, if you go to a Christian bookstore, you'll see myriads and myriads, hosts of angels displayed along the shelves. And you may not fear a great fear, right? Because in our day and age, angels are beautiful, often cutesy things. But that's not the picture that the Bible gives us. If you look in Daniel 10 through 12, if you look at the warrior passages in the book of Revelation or Zechariah, there are lots of angels, and they are, they are terrifying divine warriors. An angel is no mere messenger. An angel, an angel is a warrior of heaven. And in fact, the language of this passage is designed to remind you of that, though we sometimes miss it. Uh, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. Another translation, the New Living Translation, puts it this way. A great multitude of angels, the armies of heaven, appeared before this shepherd. When the glory of God is revealed, it is revealed in, in terrifying might in this wondrous, powerful uh, revelation of God's overwhelming and abundant force. It is, not a, it is not just a beautiful thing to, get, to behold. It is beautiful, and we'll get to that in a moment. But it is also terrifying in its power. And maybe you've had a moment like that where you've stood before, you know, whatever it is, the Grand Canyon or on top of a high skyscraper or or maybe you've been in war and seen the might of man displayed before you. There's a scene in Band of Brothers when they're in the forest, when they're uh, in the winter, and these two individuals, these two soldiers are huddled in 
fairly safe, surprisingly safe kind of foxhole. And above them, the German, uh, the German explosive force is being displayed, blowing up trees in their midst. And because they're in a safe place, they kind of turn to each other and they laugh. This is incredible, the sheer firepower that human beings are able to produce. Just a couple foxholes down, laughter is not the preeminent expression as human beings are being destroyed. But if you're safe and you behold this thing that's bigger than yourself, that's wondrous in its power, it could be a, a wonderful, beautiful thing to behold and yet terrifying at the same time. And that's the position that these shepherds are in. They see the mighty armies of God, the angelic armies of God, and they are both in awe and wonder, but also fear and trembling. Because when you have those moments, you, your soul is undone. You realize that there is power, that there is majesty, that there is force great, so much greater than you that you cannot handle it. The glory of God is fearful in its might. It, it projects force and wonder and power. And let's be clear, the shepherds only experience a, a, a shadow of that great glory. How much more to behold the glory of God in all of its fullness, not just the armies of God, but God himself in his glory. But notice... Not only is the glory of God fearful in its might and power, it is also joyful in its goodness, and it is both. The German bombardment is not joyful in its goodness. This is an evil thing. It is a wicked thing. It is human beings trying to kill each other in war. The glory of God is different. It is good, and it is not only good for God, it is good for human beings. The armies of God come before these shepherds. But notice the song that they sing. It's not a marching song. They are not off to war. They are proclaiming glory to God and the highest, in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. There's an irony built into this passage. The armies of God gathered in front of unarmored soldiers, defenseless soldiers, but the message that be, is being proclaimed, the message that they sing isn't a war message, it isn't judgment, it's peace. The armies of God singing a song of peace, peace for those with whom he is pleased. Well, what's so great about peace? The glory of God, think about that. The glory of God comes in wondrous might and simultaneously, at the same time, peace for those with whom he is pleased. And peace in the Bible doesn't just mean the ending of warfare. It's not just the end of a battle. Peace carries with it all of the blessings associated with the divine presence. What is peace? What is the glory of God as it's revealed in peace? It is to dwell 
in God's presence with all the benefits thereof. Benedict, the benediction that we uh, frequently use in our service, which we will use this morning as well. I'm going to read you the full passage from Numbers 6. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel, so that they shall bless the people of Israel by saying this to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious you to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The peace of God is intimately associated with all of the other blessings. It is God smiling at you. Kids, maybe you've done something. You've, you've, you've put together maybe an art project for your parents or you've worked really hard this semester in school and you've really wanted to present all of those B pluses or A minuses or A pluses to your parents. And when you do, they look on you and you can see their pleasure. You can see their delight. You can see that in you, in you they are well pleased. And it sets you at ease. It sets you at peace. That's what the peace of God is like. It comes, the glory of God comes in its in terrifying might. And at the same time, the angels say, peace. And the shepherds are good Jewish shepherds. They understand these things. They are, they are followers after the Lord. And they hear that in the, in the biblical tones it's intended. Not just the ceasing of warfare, but the peace that is pronounced upon the people of Israel when God makes his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The peace of knowing that in you, God is well pleased. So the glory of God, it comes in terrifying might, but at the same time, it is joyful in its goodness. It is a complicated thing to behold the glory of God. His powerful presence shows itself in his glory simultaneously in overwhelming power and also delight and favor. And make no mistake about it, it is that experience of the glory of God that you were made for. That's why everything else, all of the other delights of this world seem like mere shadows compared to the experience of the presence of God. This is why we were made. We were designed to behold God in his glory. And yet, the shepherds quake. They're fearful. They, there's something in them that acknowledges, this isn't for me. What's going on there? The second thing we need to understand is that the glory of God is accessible. The glory of God is awesome in its revelation, but it is also accessible. And at this point, that should feel a little bit counterintuitive. How can I access something that is this powerful and this great? Maybe you have been in an experience where you've stood on the threshold of something, right? You, you, you were in the concert, but you didn't get to go backstage. You know, there are things that are good in this world that are inaccessible to us. The Wu-Tang Clan, and I absolutely know absolutely nothing about the Wu-Tang Clan, so I'm not pretending to be cool here, but the Wu-Tang Clan recently published uh, a, an album, right? They, their newest album, 
and they made one copy, limited edition, only one, and it sold for millions. And the guy they sold it to said, I, I'm not going to release that. There's no way I'm going to release this to the public. This is mine. The whole point of doing it this way is that I get something that's glorious from his perspective, and you don't. It's inaccessible. So often, the way in which we as human beings express glory or prestige is by isolating and cutting off others. This is for me and not for you. That's how you know that I am more important, that I am more special, that I am elite. And it seems very reasonable that the glory of God would be something that's held out for the elite, for the important. It's not something for the masses. It's something for those who, are, who have some sort of special in with God. And theologically, if you're thinking that way, you're actually on somewhat good grounds. There are two reasons, biblically, that the glory of God should be inaccessible to you. First, you are too fragile, and second, you are too sinful. First, you're too fragile. Our bodies are incapable of seeing and, and experiencing the fullness of the glory of God. Even those who have experienced some taste of the glory of God, say, for example, Moses, exemplify that. God says to Moses, you can't see the fullness of my glory. You can see my backside. You cannot see my face. And even then, I'll have to protect you in, in the rock. The fullness of God's glory is, is inaccessible to us. We're too fragile. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that our bodies, our present bodies, our, our uh, physical bodies are not ready for that. We need actually different bodies. We need spiritual bodies, capital S, spirit. Holy Spirit wrought bodies in order to behold the fullness of the glory of God. We're too fragile. And secondly, we're too sinful. We're not only too fragile to experience the glory of God, we're too sinful. Our sin creates a distance between us and God, actually enmity between us and God. The opposite of peace. So that if the glory of God is to, if we're to experience that, we are to, can only experience it in the form of his wrath, in the form of his justice, his destroying power. This is why the shepherd's quake. This is why we are undone, because we understand that the glory of God and all of its goodness is not for us, just his wrath. And yet, the angels come and they pronounce peace. How can they do that? How is it the case that the glory of God can be accessible to us, though we are fragile and though we are sinful? Two things in this passage that indicate that the glory of God is accessible to us. First, the glory of God is announced to inglorious shepherds. To whom does God reveal his glory? To whom does God come and say, glory is on its way, glory is coming? When you announce something, when you want people to come, when you invite some people to participate in an event, you're going to think through, okay, where do I want to publish that? Where do I want to announce that? What's the best way 
to reach the most number of people who would benefit or delight in this event. The angels, they come and they're announcing that the glory of God is coming in, the servant, in, his, in God's servant, Jesus Christ. How are they going to announce that? When we did the art show at our church, we printed out a number of uh, cards and we thought about where we want to distribute these. And we put them in college campuses and we put them in coffee shops and we, we displayed them prominently. We put it on the website so that people who might enjoy this kind of event would come and participate and it was very fruitful. So it seems strange that when the angels choose how to announce this birth, which establishes the glory of God on earth, that, he, that the angels would go to shepherds. Why shepherds? Shepherds aren't particularly well known. They're not particularly well respected in society. They're just ordinary people. They're not particularly reliable or believable. They don't have a lot of influence. Why shepherds? On the one hand, it seems unlikely. But on the other hand, what's going on here is that Luke is telling us that this is precisely those for whom the king has come. He has come for the weak and the lowly. He has come for the humble of heart. He has come for those who have not. We read that in the Magnificat when we did our, uh, at, at the opening. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away. When God comes to reveal his glory, his intent is to reveal it to those who are inglorious, who do not have glory, a glory of their own. To reveal it to the humble of heart, who know, those who know that they are both too fragile and too sinful to receive that which they have received. That's to whom God comes, and he proclaims that that's who he's coming to in the way in which he announces Jesus' birth. Remember, Herod, the most powerful man in Judea, hears about the birth of Jesus Christ secondhand. The people that get it directly are shepherds and foreigners. The humble servant the humble Jewish servant waiting on the Lord in the temple. These are the people that hear about the glory of God and what God is doing is he's telling us to whom the kingdom has come, to whom the king will reveal his glory, not the, those who exalt themselves, but those who are humble of heart. The second way in which we see in this passage that the glory of God is accessible to us is that it is established, it, it not only comes to inglorious shepherds, it not only comes to shepherds who have no, none of the outward trappings of glory, it is also established by an inglorious servant. How does God receive glory? Glory, glory, glory to God in the highest. Well, what's changed? Why now does God, or do the angels ascribe glory to God? What event are the angels talking about? They're talking about, of course, the birth of Jesus Christ. For unto you is born this day, verse 11, in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That is the way in which God establishes glory. He establishes his glory by bringing his son into the world 
to, to build a kingdom, to be the king, to receive the throne, and to forever, in his resurrection and ascension, to forever establish the glory of God on earth. But he doesn't give this glory. He doesn't appoint someone of high status. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then in 16, they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And we can understand their wonder. There is a conflict. There is a dynamic contrast in this passage. On the one hand, all of the hopes of the glory of God rest on this child. And on the other hand, this child is born in a manger to a poor Jewish woman of no standing status or importance. God reveals his glory. Not only proclaims his glory to those of humble estate, he reveals and establishes it through one who is humble in a state. He establishes his glory through a servant who is made like us in every way, who experiences the same shames, the same uh, uncomfortable moments, the same awkwardness, this, everything that is true for you, everything that makes you think, I am not fit for a king's hall or a president's court, everything that makes you ashamed to be in the presence of glory, Jesus sympathizes with that because he was made like us in every estate. His body is made fragile like ours. And though he was without sin, he nevertheless takes on willingly the guilt and shame due our sinfulness. And the glory of God is established by taking this servant, Jesus Christ, through his faithful obedience subjecting him to the death that we deserve, and then and only then. See, first you have a humiliation that takes place so that he can fully identify with everything that's inglorious about us, and then and only then is he exalted and given the name that is above every name, that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. God establishes his kingdom by humbling his servant. He establishes his glory first and foremost through humility. And because he has done this this way, he is able to issue an invitation to everyone humble and lowly. The way in which God brings the kingdom establishes an invitation that we might participate within it. If God had brought his kingdom in another way, if he had shown his glory directly in an exalted way, without humbling his servant, if he had shown his glory by force of power, we would be destroyed because we are too fragile and too sinful. So what he does is he establishes his son as the one to whom all glory will be received. And what the son does is he brings us with him. He brings us with him into glory. And so an invitation is being offered in this passage. It's being offered to shepherds to those of lowly estate, to those humble in heart. And the invitation is this, come and see the glory of God. 
come and experience the presence of God in the form of his overwhelming glory. In all of its power, in all of its goodness, you are invited to become a participant through Jesus Christ. The glory of God then is good news for the humble. And it raises that question, how then do I become a participant in it? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among, among those with whom he is pleased. How can I be assured that God is pleased with me and therefore it's a safe place to be in the presence of his glory? Well, our answer is in Psalm 2. Kiss the Son. How do you know that somebody is pleased with you? Well, one great way is to be invited, to be invited to the party, to be invited to dinner, to be invited to an activity or participate. To receive an invitation is a proclamation. I am pleased with you. Let's join together. Let's fellowship together. And what Jesus does in proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom is he invites all to be participants. Who, in whom is God well pleased? In all those who accept the invitation of Jesus Christ to be citizens of his kingdom through faith in him. That is the good news of the gospel. Not only has the kingdom come, but it has come with an open invitation to shepherds and to men from the east and to lowly servant girls and to priests to any who will humble their heart and receive the invitation of the coming king to come and be a part of this kingdom. How then should we respond? Well, we should receive the invitation. And moreover, two things. As the kingdom comes, as it implants in our hearts, as we are invited to participate in the glory of God through Jesus Christ, our Savior, two ways in which we respond. First, as the angels, we sing. We sing. We rejoice. That's the joy of Christmas. We do not yet, we have not yet received and seen everything associated with the glory of God, but we have tasted in part. And so we rejoice for the joy that is yet to come. The angels break out in song. They break out in joy because they know something that we too know, that the king has come and established his glory on earth. The second thing we proclaim, we rejoice and we proclaim, Mary treasured these things up in her heart. And we heard about that over the Christmas Eve service. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. They spread the news to any who would hear. And I'm sure some laughed at him at them and didn't believe them. They're shepherds after all, not kingly messengers, not notary publics. They were doubted. But they cannot help but proclaim what they have seen and what they have heard. Because if this thing is true, if the presence of God is revealed in all of its glory and that that presence, that glory is in fact joy to the world even though we are too fragile, even though we are too sinful, we have been invited to participate in the fullness of God's glory. Everything is different. 
Everything has changed. So we rejoice and we proclaim, and we can do so even now with a hymn like the one before us, Joy to the World. It's a hymn in which we find the glory of God and the joy of human beings intimately associated. For God to glorify himself is for him to bless those who have no glory of their own. Let's pray.